Welcome to Strike Talk and a return to where this podcast began. There won't be any six-minute intro this week. Uh, My weekly and shameless theft of Rachel Maddow's style is taking a one-week sabbatical. Instead, we're going to re-meet the producer who first invited me to this microphone. He and I are going to introduce you to someone who can help our business rethink an issue that has thus far been a giant wedge between the AMPTP and the two guilds that it forced into striking. Like I said, we're in town hall mode now. So here goes. Well, look who's back from Australia. (laughs) One minute you're tweeting to your Mortal Kombat fans from an airplane. Next minute you're back here with me podcasting for free. Hey. Hello, 2023. Hello, Todd Garner. Hi, Billy. How are you, man? What 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 a weird couple months this has been. Tell me what happened. You're in Australia. You're 20 days into shooting. Uh, lots of money's been spent on Mortal Kombat 2. What were the signs you were getting that there might be a SAG walkout? And then what happened, what happened when you actually did? Going there, it really did feel like everybody on that side, I mean the AMPTP side, really felt like SAG was going to settle. I mean, we were moving full bore, planning, you know, all the way through production. Coming back from that weekend where they extended I was thinking, oh, okay, they're, this, this feels really good about settling. And I was really cynical about it and saying, well, what they're really doing is giving Barbie and, and Oppenheimer and Mission a chance to finish their press. And then when they came back, everything really shifted from the inside. My line producer, Bennett Walsh, and I started getting some communication from the studio saying, hey, uh, make a one-week plan, you know, make a six-week plan and, and make a plan that goes through the end of the year. We're like, whoa. There were a few new actors specifically on the movie that were asking me, can I even talk to you like anymore? Like, are we supposed to talk? Try to make them understand that producers are not the AMPTP. And I was there to really help them manage this situation to get them home safely and 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 following the rules and making sure that they got home. We were even shooting that night, uh, we were counting down the minutes, like at 5 p.m., you may go on strike. And it was called, and at 5 p.m., he shook his hand and packed up. Now, what are they saying to you? It's been interesting. It was total shutdown. All the other producers that I talked to that were in the same boat were all doing the same thing, running weekly scenarios, monthly scenarios. So I have to believe that AMPTP really knows the cost of this strike. And then about five or six days ago, we started getting, um, you know, hey, what would it look like if we started on the 1st of October? How long would it take you to ramp up to start the 1st of October? Something changed in the last five days. And so that's why when I heard that they were going to start negotiating again, I'm like, oh, this all seems, seems very positive. But then obviously Friday came and went. While Carol Lombardini is sitting around not negotiating with people, I think her time would be very well served changing the name of her organization. And I believe it should be the AMPTC, um, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Companies, because I'm sick of people talking about the producers as if the producers are the problem. Uh, I love producers. Producers have been very, very good to me. And some of them have had real impacts in my life. And I've learned a lot from them. 
And I'm not striking against producers. I'm striking against companies. Before we begin with our guest, a little bit of context. Per a recent LA Times poll, 45% of Americans are afraid of being replaced by AI. When you ask Americans between the ages of 18 and 34, that number jumps up to 57%. Two-thirds of Americans, per that same poll, say they think SAG and the WGA are justified in making AI a centerpiece of their negotiating demands. My concerns about what AI will do to storytelling and therefore to our business are very much a matter of record now. But I also have an extremely practical objection to AI, which is this. In July of 2016, when Melania Trump gave a speech at the Republican National Convention that was stolen word for word from a speech that Michelle Obama had once given, we here in liberal Hollywood took a lot of pleasure in roasting her for doing so. It was proof we said that she didn't have an original thought in her head. When a reporter named Jason Blair of the New York Times got caught plagiarizing articles from the AP and the Washington Post, we excoriated him, of course. Robin Thicke rips off Marvin Gaye, and he's dead to us. Hollywood is better than that. We prize ourselves on originality here. And yet we are tripping over ourselves to make room for AI, which is built for the sole purpose of plagiarizing. AI cannot yet generate an original thought. All it can do is repurpose information from original sources. Worse, as currently designed, OpenAI can't even tag and identify those sources. As it told you on this very program in the voice of Morgan Freeman, it can't tell you who it's ripping off. That needs to be fixed. Frank Correa has figured out how. He is an attorney by trade with a huge background in tech and sound design, among other things. He's a consultant and an entrepreneur who works in the intersection of entertainment, tech, and finance. Um, he had a great deal to do with work on the Michael Jackson catalog. He has developed an app that is in closed beta at the moment, so we can't tell you a lot about it, but it required him to create his own AI, a different kind of AI, what he calls ethical AI. He's here to tell us about it. Hello, Frank. Thank you, Billy, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You, you know, like my, my focus, having you know, been at the intersection, working with creators you know, from, the, from scratch, and then looking at the perspective of all the stakeholders you know, relative to like AI, you know, in the process of, you know, coding the platform that I'm working on, which is largely, uh, you know, for the creator economy and brings AI and gives proper attribution and, and transparency, a lot of things that people are looking for, it became apparent that it is actually, you know, very easy to bring in credits, footnotes, all sorts of things in the process, you know, that are really important for uh, the creators themselves and, you know, even ultimately the studio. So, so looking at this whole picture, you know, the writers, the actors, producers, studios are actually in the same boat when it comes to AI having to be responsible in terms of saying where the sources came from. And that can be done very easily. You know, like a lot of companies, they'll go in and web, web scrape sites, but when they bring the data in, they don't necessarily say where the information came from and who authored it, right? So with responsible AI, what you're doing is as you're scraping, you're bringing in all the attributes. It's as simple as having a dictionary and adding author, publisher, ISBN number, et cetera, et cetera, copyright date. And that can be carried through 
the entire process when you use tools to, you know, to work on the data and ultimately the output, but it's not being done. And that's what, you know, creators need, the industry needs, so on and so forth. So for example, if I said, I want to write a screenplay in the um, genre of, um, you know, horror, but I wanted to have a Quentin Tarantino slash Billy Ray flair, anything that you scraped from Billy Ray's work would have to be paid to the copyright holder, right? That, 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 that is possible, you're saying. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the issue is without like attribution going through the AI model, you don't get to the payment stage. So it's almost like you don't have a seat at the table because we don't know where anything came from for purposes of clearing to give royalties, so on and so forth. So, so that's an issue. So basically, like these fields could be brought in at the input stage. Right. And they, you know, as you like summarize, you know, combine works and do all, create derivative works and all those sorts of things, you could still bring out the attribution on the output side also, as long as you have it on the input. If, if you didn't bring it in in the first place, those models are very complicated. So I think like, you know, if the industry takes a stance and says, OK, we want to work with models that have attribution you know, and prefer those models, then at some point, the models that don't have it go rogue, the models that have been really responsible with works are, are useful because you can, you know, clear everything. You know, there's, there's something too that's probably important to talk about just from a, a legal standpoint, and that's just the copyright process. So, you know, when you, the second you create something or write something down, it's copyrighted automatically because it's captured in a tangible medium of expression. And then let's just say somebody comes along and they use that work and they create another work that's creative, but it's still based on the source work. It's considered a derivative work in copyright. So usually you would go back to the original rights holder and negotiate something. Uh, but there's also exceptions called fair use. Classic fair use is a parody or using AI for research and scholarship or for news commentary, right? And like it's like there are four factors to you know consider with uh, fair use. So I'll just read a you know a couple: the purpose and character of the use, and whether it is for commercial or educational purposes. So we're in an age where you have models that were built for research purposes now being commercialized. So clearances start to become more of an issue as AI grows. The nature of the copyrighted work, so whether it's factual data or work by Billy Ray, you know, very different factual data you know, weight goes to fair use. Billy Ray's work is unique. So that would, you know, cut against fair use. The mountain substantiality of the portion of the work used in relation to, to the copyrighted work as a whole and the effect on the use and the potential market value of the copyrighted work. So those are factors which are kind of gray areas because they're so, kind of subjective. But the more transformative a work is as it goes through the AI model, the bigger the argument for fair use the less transformative and creative it is, then, you know, the, the less that fair use is, can be used as a, as a defense. So there's a lot of instances where you're just searching and doing really basic prompts where you're almost bringing up the work word for word. So that wouldn't be considered transformative. And that needs to be cleared. Why wouldn't the studios want this? Say, uh, let me flip the script. I'm Todd Garner. I'm, a, I'm not on strike. I'm going to sit here on my computer and I'm going to go on AI and I'm going to say, take the entire Paramount library and make the best movie based mashing those all together. And I sell that script to Netflix for $2 million and we make the movie. 
Wouldn't Paramount be pissed off about that, that I've taken all of their library, taken the best pieces of, you know, Chinatown and uh, Godfather and Fatal Attraction and mashed them all together and created a derivative work that just bits and tiny little bits and pieces from everything, but that I went and sold for a couple million bucks. Wouldn't that be a problem for Paramount? Yeah, it's a, it would be a huge problem because they're, you know, they have all kinds of cross rights issues and they don't want to limit their you know, the value of their own franchises and so on and so forth. You know, like, cause right now, like the focus has been on like taking works from writers, but we're moving to accelerative computing age. We're analyzing the entire finished product of a film on many different levels starts to become an issue, stripping out the dialogue, going voice to text, you know, the music, editing sequences, themes, you know, so on and so forth. Some would, would be considered maybe transformative, others not. But, but it's a big problem for everyone. So this is clearly the moment to slow down the trajectory of where AI is going and have an industry-wide conversation about what we're going to do about it, right? Because as, Todd, as you mentioned, the, the scenario that I think we're building towards is a point where every studio is suing every other studio because they're saying, well, your AI stole this from me. Well, FO, your, your AI stole this from me, as opposed to um, ethical AI, which attributes. Um, so everyone knows where AI took from everyone else. Um, just seems like they're going to have to do this or they're all going to be uh, in litigation for the rest of time. So I guess my question is, when people began, when Bill Gates decided that he was going to build out an AI, um, why didn't he choose ethical AI? Is it more expensive to build ethical AI than open AI? I, you know, I think now's the moment really to start to bring in ethical AI because the issue is, you know, AI originated largely from data scientists using all sorts of material for research purposes. And then all of a sudden we have this incredible use case, you know, that the public can identify with, which is like ChatGPT. And you have like, you know, basically a coding culture that was built on research now becoming commercialized. So, you know, when you're sitting in the research chair, you're not, because you have fair use protection, you're not necessarily sitting there thinking about like the writers, the actors, and so on and so forth, producers, studios. So, you know, as things are being commercialized so fast, now is the time to start to do these things before you have too many models out there going in the wrong direction that don't meet the needs of the entertainment industry. And the entertainment industry is like a microcosm of all the other industries that need attribution for lots of different reasons, like the medical professions scanning records for diagnosis purposes, of course, <laughs> you want to make sure the sources are right so you can check AI and put guardrails around them. Because the thing, thing is, if you let everything go crazy and you can't fact check and source, then we don't, we're not going to know the difference between a, a fact, you know, and a falsehood. So that's, you know, dangerous in and of itself. But, but the thing is right now, like in the entertainment industry, if we sit on our hands, we'll get in a point where we're wondering why we can't even get to the table to have a conversation about usage and royalties. So you, you, so in other words, you have all these battles, you know, like right now happening, just getting the core issues, you know, between the WGA, SAG, AMPTP, and you settle those issues and then you get back to work and then over time, AI starts taking over certain 
areas, you know, just for efficiency reasons. But then at the end of the day, how do you really source the work? How do you give people their proper credit identity? So, so I think the first pillar to take on in terms of like making AI work in a commercial sector and for the entertainment industry is to establish like the pillar of attribution and why that has to happen in the models now so that we do have a future to discuss all the other issues that come, come later, you know? Yeah. I mean, it really feels like, (laughs) it really feels like the studio should be very, very, very worried about this because, you know, as the WGA is very concerned and Billy, from the moment we started talking about this on the very first podcast, he and I, his, his biggest fear of, of AI it, right out of the gate was AI is going to generate a script. I'm not going to have any other writers to work with, and I'm going to have to rewrite this AI. But yes, and what if that AI was generated by saying, I want you to make a sitcom very similar to Seinfeld as, you know, and, and add a little friend dollop of friends in there. And then Billy has handed this screenplay that he's going to rewrite wouldn't the copyright holders of seinfeld and friends be like what the actual fuck are you thinking you can't just take rip and regurgitate it because that's what ai does is it's just regurgitating whatever you prompt it to look for so how why aren't the studios the ones saying "Hey, hey by the way guys ai no, we're not doing any AI until we got a handle on this, until every line of AI code is embedded, you know, either the blockchain or some other way that we can go in and figure out how to get paid for it. Nobody's using this because right now everybody's talking about efficiency and we're going to take a scan of a dude and make him like an extra for the eternity. But they're not talking about the reality, which is, hey, I'm Todd Garner. Um, make me a movie that's sort of like Blade Runner but it also has a little Dune mixed in. And, and that movie, you know, could become a huge hit. Those rights holders should be freaking out about this because there's the hundreds of thousands of people out of work right now that have access to this technology that can go do this. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I mean, it creates a bubble of liability, be, you know, because the, the main thing is like without attribution, you don't even necessarily know the extent to which the, the two properties were mashed up in other properties. And if you find out later and you create a, a work like that, the, the writer who writes on top of AI has a problem, even if they disclose it. And then the studios have an issue because they don't know what to clear and so on and so forth. And it's just, or they can't, can't go back and say, oh, okay, this is absolutely ridiculous. Let's throw it out because this isn't fair use. All right. So Frank, let me ask you a question. Um, three weeks ago on this show, AI a large language model, uh, in the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I asked it uh, to pitch me a half-hour sitcom. And it did, in a a second. And it, uh, although it was almost indecipherable because it sounded so much like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, but there there was an actual pitch in there. So if that had been done through ethical AI, that pitch that the Schwarzenegger voice uh, gave me about that... uh, that sitcom, that would be tagged. It would be able to attribute where it got various ideas, where it got various inferences, who, what styles influenced it. In your ethical AI, we could actually compensate the people from which that idea generated. Yes? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would respect their rights to publicity, name, image, likeness, which we all deal with clearing in the first place. So if it couldn't be cleared, it wouldn't be in the model in the first place. If it were cleared, then it would have very clear attribution as to who the source was so that the source could be paid and compensated you know, fairly. And the AI that you designed for your app was not specifically designed to do that, but within, uh, you'll tell me how much time it would take you to change the code enough so that your AI could do that. Could your AI also figure out a formula of compensation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the thing is, this is what the industry, I think the coding world needs to understand is if you bring in all of the data on attribution and in the first place, then it's easier to deal with these issues that are inevitable, you know, over the medium to the long term. Because at some point, the studios wake up, actors, WGA members, and so forth, and say, hey, we really need clarity on this, right? So the models that win are going to be the ones that are responsible and the models that you can rely on to reduce liability so you don't create a, a, a you know, legal liability bubble creating works. So, so you know, it's kind of like, you know, how when Napster came in, the music business kind of sat on their hands a little bit. Tech companies came in and set the price of a single. So first music was devalued to, to nothing. Then music was valued, but undervalued by the tech companies. And the industry didn't stand up and say, okay, the price of a single should be like, you know, 240 and not, you know, $1.29 to compensate for all of the work that's been been done. So we're in a similar moment, like with respect to the entertainment industry, where, you know, it's an industry that everybody listens to. So if the industry is really demanding attribution, you're getting ahead of the fact that AI needs to be regulated from the standpoint of uh, Congress passing laws, things running through the court systems, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a good time to take a stance and say, okay, in order to be deemed commercially viable, you know, the, this is like a minimum pillar that we all need. And then the conversation, you know, can really continue on how you responsibly, you know, divvy that up or deal with clearances and so forth. But, but, you know, the models people feel comfortable with uh, from, from an ethical moral standpoint are the models that win, you know, in the long run. If I wrote a book with no footnotes and that book was published and then like 90 writers went, hey, there's like four of my quotes in there. The publisher would have a real problem because they sold all these books and now they're going to be locked in litigation with a bunch of different people because I didn't footnote anything. I didn't attribute anything in my historical, uh, you know, uh, account of Hollywood. And I've just taken all these pieces of books and just sort of cut and pasted them. That would, if you went out and sold all those books, that would be a real issue. So right now we're at a pinnacle where if the studios are going to be using AI to generate scripts or images or things like that, and they go out and sell that and they make money from that, they could be opening themselves up to tons of litigation, not only from each other, but from people going, hey, wait a minute, that's a direct quote from my screenplay or book or whatever. This is partially also a cat and mouse game because at some point tools come along that are going to discover usages of AI, even if they weren't attributed. So it, it's better to like attribute and deal with that head on than to wait for those things to happen later. And Frank, what is long net? Yeah, long net. Okay. Actually, if there's time, it's really good to talk about like accelerative computing and like what's happening. So on one end, in a nutshell, 
GPU processors are becoming more efficient and they're they're actually becoming like computers in and of themselves. So the actual server cloud is transforming dramatically. Server the, the amount of uh, space that you need in server farm is being dramatically reduced. Power of computation and sequencing is you know gaining substantially and you're using electricity. On the other hand, like you know long net it's like almost like a form of compre- compression. So you can actually take in you know Anywhere instead of like in a sequence taking in twenty tokens, like we spoke about, you can probably take in a billion to- tokens without having like uh, efficiency issues uh, on the processing side. Just so I'm clear, okay, right now, um, a large language model can handle twenty thousand tokens, right? In other words, um, it can consume a long article or or a novel. That, that's essentially what 20,000 tokens is in terms of, of, of space, right? And you're saying that LongNet, which is coming, can handle a billion tokens, meaning that that's an AI that can consume the entire internet. Am I misunderstanding that? Yeah, conceptually, yes, exactly. And then, but you also have to think there are also all sorts of other products being dev- developed that are follow a similar philosophy. So let's just group them all and say like compression technology is going to become amazing, right? So you're going to have efficiencies like long net potentially and smaller models that are more efficient that don't have to be trained as long. So that may that means like AI taking off and being able to do video and analyze longer sequences of data, like you know, multiple novels all together. And, and, and give some kind of context on that. that that's going to become easier, which basically increases the need for attribution now because you're going to have more, you know, analysis, bigger uses, uh, and dealing with media types that are hard to process, that were previously hard to process in a server farm. So now... If that's the case, and then AI can take video and search it and start to create... What's stopping some incredibly smart gamer from doing the exact same thing I just said a screenwriter could do? And just taking all of the movies in, from the Sony library, combining them into one mega movie with all their slightly different characters from you know all of their library and putting it out on the net for $29.95 a piece. What would stop some YouTuber from just putting Paramount or Sony or Warner Brothers out of business, just make their own stuff using AI and long net and taking all this technology if it can compress so easy. What's stopping them from doing that? There's not a lot stopping someone from, you know, in in the future from creating like a really compelling visual work using AI. But yeah, but the question is, where did the source material come from? Quantum computing is, that's something maybe that's like at least 10 years out or something like that. But that's like literally getting in between the ones and zeros and, and being able to do complex, you know, calculations and that sort of thing. But I think right now, because we're in the accelerative computing age, I mean, that's good enough to really start to move towards, uh, you know, video-esque applications or uh, analyzing longer sequences of data. So like, you know, going from novels to entire volumes of works.
just to go back to quantum computing for a second, you say it's 10 years out, just so, so I have some context for this. How much more powerful would it be than the tech we have today? <laughs> thousands upon thousands, especially if at some point you have access to it. I, Bill, Billy and I have spoken about this before, and I'm just talking about this in, in inflection point right now. And I spoke about it on a podcast I used to have, and Billy and I talked about it, which is that basically it, when home video was lagging, the studios saw this new technology called the internet and this new company called Netflix. And they took the legacy media companies took full advantage, they thought, of selling their product to this new technology to see, yeah, let's go see what they can go do with it. And then Netflix is born. And now there's no way to, to unwind Netflix, which is leading them all in streaming by leaps and bounds. It feels like this is the same moment for AI that the studios are saying, well, let's see what happens. I know what the, you know, writers, you guys are, you know, you're paranoid about this or actors, you're paranoid about this, but it feels like they're selling all of their stuff to this new technology, or in this case, not even selling it, giving it away by saying, oh, you know, we have all this IP out there on the internet that AI is definitely gonna scrape in mind, definitely. In fact, it's been spoken about openly that, you know, write me a, they always say like, write me a movie in the, in the vein of Billy Ray. Well, Billy Ray had to write a movie that somebody owns the copyright for. So it feels like at this moment, they're doing the same thing. They're not, they're not worrying about it enough that thank God the guilds are because somebody needs to wrap their arms around this as an industry and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are we doing the same thing? Are we going to give away all of our stuff to create this new industry for Microsoft or Google that's going to completely run us over and wipe us out? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, we are at that inflection point and Going back to what Billy said about quantum computing, that's going to be like another inflection point down the pipeline, which accelerates everything. But yeah, like now, now is the moment because, you know, it's kind of like you voice your opinion or you're taken over in certain areas. We're going to, we're going to bring this to a close now, but I just want to know as, as we go forward, how long would it take you to take the app that you have now and, and recode it's ethical AI so that it could be of specific use to uh, people in the entertainment industry. Yeah. I mean, in the model, there's a lot in there now, you know, from, from, cause it was built with AI in mind before the use cases took off. And so that, you know, that can be done as an example, but also, you know, I would say not just like the studios and say something I build, but it's almost like the whole industry has to take, take this really seriously. Todd and I believe from the start, that the Guild strike was the front line in a much larger struggle about the corporatization of America, the worth of the individual, the dignity of work, the power of labor, um, and that Hollywood should actually lead the way uh, in terms of a new day. Um, and I'm hoping that if Hollywood is going to embrace AI, and it seems like there's no way we can talk them out of it, that at least they should be embracing ethical AI so that everything is above board. You're saying that technology is not only possible and achievable, but that you've actually done it and that you can um, recalibrate your own system, for example, so that it can do what Hollywood needs it to do. Yes? Yeah, yes. So that could be, you know, obviously a model for the future. So if you're a CEO of one of these corporations, it's in your interest to have consent and compensation 
because otherwise somebody else is going to make a movie weirdly close to one of your big hits that they're going to be profiting from or or some kid in his mom's basement who has a really powerful computer is going to create the next huge franchise that you're not going to be a part of because you're not in front of this technology in the same way you weren't in front of this streaming idea. And by the way, um, every single company in America that is currently developing AI is being sued for copyright infringement. All of them. Um, this seems like uh, a really dumb idea to me, but I'm just a screenwriter. Frank, thank you so much. Todd, you're going to stick around. We're going to continue our conversation. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it was a great conversation. Thank you. Okay. So um, as you know, the last uh, three weeks on this podcast have been an attempt to be, as I said, more of a town hall, more of a, we're all facing problems. Let's see if we can solve them together. And that's why I wanted Frank to come on. I learned a lot. I know you did too. Seems like this is not a technology that is going to go away. So it better be a technology that we choose to understand better and use better as a tool, wouldn't you say? This is about um, you know the studios protecting everything they've built over the hundreds of years that they've been collecting libraries because all of that is vulnerable to AI to be mined and scraped for anybody to come along and take and then use and either sell back to a competitor or just make it themselves. So a couple things uh, before we close. First, LongNet, which was described by Frank Correa, um, that's owned by Microsoft. I remember Professor Scott Galloway coming on this show and saying that the studio's problem is not the writers. The studios and the writers have a common problem, which is in Seattle. Um, I think that is proving to be incredibly clairvoyant much to my regret. Let's now talk about what happened last Friday and what is going to be happening today. As you know, the talks between the uh, WGA and the AMPTP will be restarting um, this afternoon. They restarted last Friday. A lot of people got their hopes up and then got their hopes dashed. Uh, the Writers Guild was expecting very, very little last Friday and of course um, was proven right. There's a reason why I'm a little skeptical about these talks restarting, which is I've been in that room um, three times and I can tell you that that system, uh, that negotiating system where companies make uh, a proposal, we go off and caucus, we come back, we make a counter, they go off and caucus, they come back with a counter of our counter, and it's all very stiff and, and formal. And not only does it not encourage innovation in deal-making, it positively kills innovation in deal-making. And if you want this strike to end, um, this strike will end the way every strike ends, which is you got to get a couple CEOs that matter, I have two in mind in particular, and they've got to get in a room with the WGA. And then they will solve it because the fact is they have a number in their head. And once the WGA knows what that number is, we can actually figure this thing out. Todd, wouldn't you say that's true? They have a number in their mind and maybe they don't agree on the number and that's a whole other issue. But let's say they are close enough to the number, you're going to get there. But this not talking not letting everybody cool off, letting it, it is a strategy, man. And it's exactly what nego it's negotiation 101. Let them cool down, let them wait it out, make them suffer a little more. It's not good for any of us. And it, you're exactly right. It's a, it's a tactic to try to, whatever their number is, and maybe they've said it out loud, or maybe the negotiating committee knows what that number is. They are doing their best 
to prove to their bosses that they're worth having the job. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Um, Todd, thank you. It's lovely to have you back. And um, as happy as I am to see you, I truly hope you are soon on another plane to Australia uh, to pick up where you left off. I want to thank our brilliant producers, uh, Jade Collins and Hannah Baker, for their always incredible work. Please, please join us next week when our guests will be... Todd, would you like to? Billy Friedkin. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I wish. I wish yeah. it could be. This is Stripe Talk. I can never-